0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello, National Security Law colleagues. Before we begin our discussion today with Michael Atkinson, former Inspector General of the U.S. Intelligence Community, we want to highlight our newly released U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, 8th edition. This compendium of national security related laws and policy documents is more than an updated collection of statutory texts. It's a carefully curated and organized volume of work that illustrates how the United States counters a wide array of evolving threats within a rule of law framework. Our source book has been proudly displayed on every national security practitioner's desk, whether in Congress, the executive branch, or private practice. It's a must-have resource which also links to Relevant National Security Law Today podcasts. For our podcast listeners, use code ICLS25 for an additional 25% off. The sourcebook is linked in the description in this episode, so definitely check it out or visit www.americanbar.org/natsecurity. Here's Alisa.
1: I want you to explain one thing, because many of the listeners will be neophytes. And one of the things I think that is not apparent to everybody is why the facts alleged in the complaint fit within what whistleblowers are supposed to, you know, the fraud, abuse and the waste.
2: Well, this really gets into a violation of law. My view was that there was a violation of law and that the federal election laws were potentially being violated because of the president's solicitation of foreign assistance in an upcoming U.S. presidential election. And foreign assistance in just about all cases is illegal under our federal election laws. In fact, a couple of months before, President Trump had made public statements that if he got information from Russia, for example, he might very well listen to what the Russians had to, you know, tell him about some inside information, if you will. The head of the Federal Election Commission had made a public statement, just reminding federal officials and others that that type of offer of assistance would be illegal under our election laws, and really no one should really go down that road. The FBI director at the time, Chris Wray, had also made public statements, including in front of a Congressional Intelligence Committee, about why foreign election assistance is so dangerous and illegal under our federal election laws. Keep in mind, this was something also that I I saw within minutes of, of reading the whistleblower's complaint, is that the president's telephone call with President Zelensky took place the day after Robert Mueller testified between the two House committees about independent counsel findings on the efforts to allegedly solicit foreign election assistance from Russia. And so there was a sense at the end of former Director Mueller's testimony that the Russian investigation by the special counsel's office was over and that there were not going to be charges brought against President Trump related to that Russia investigation. And so there was a sense that the president could sort of breathe a, a sigh of relief about the Russian investigation being over. And what I noticed immediately in reading the whistleblower's complaint was that the very next day after President Trump, obviously, he had tweeted out after Mueller's the Director Mueller's testimony about, you know, Robert Mueller's performance during those House committee hearings. And I realized immediately that, you know, the very next day he had gotten on the phone with President Zelensky and had allegedly, you know, sought out this foreign election interference. And so I could see very clearly that we were going to go right back down the Russia investigation road, except this time it was going to be Ukraine and not Russia, We were going to have new actors who weren't involved in the Russia investigation, but we're going to have one consistent actor who was involved in both Russia and Ukraine. And that was then President Trump.
1: And also there was an aid package that was sought by Ukraine at the time. And I think it just in terms of optics, that also might appear, you know, sort of a tit for tat, you know, you give me this, I'll give you that. Um, Ukraine is staring down the barrel of what we now know is a Vladimir Putin who has ancient grievances and believes there's no Ukrainian identity and he ought to own the place. So that made that even worse.
2: Right. let me just say, if, if you read the whistleblower's complaint, one of the areas where the whistleblower makes it clear that at that time, there's sort of insufficient evidence for the whistleblower to say that that aid package which you're right, it had been put on hold at the president's direction as it turned out. But the whistleblower, and this is really a credit to the whistleblower, you know, didn't have sufficient evidence at that time when you know, he or she made the complaint to say with a high degree of confidence or really any degree of confidence at that time, that that aid package was part of the urgent concern. The whistleblower definitely, you know, made us aware of the issue to the whistleblower's credit, also made clear that just didn't really have clear visibility on that issue of the aid package look really suspicious, but wasn't able at that point anyways to draw a firm conclusion. I'll also say that one other concern that the president's telephone call raised was related to, you know, a counterintelligence concern, which also made it urgent. And that has to do with the fact that if the president was soliciting foreign assistance in a U.S. election, that does implicate our U.S. laws, but it also implicates anyone who's involved in that activity. You know, it subjects them potentially to compromise by a foreign intelligence service, not only compromised by, you know, that President Trump might be compromised, but anyone else who is involved in this activity, wittingly or unwittingly, could be the subject of compromise for a foreign intelligence service. It wasn't clear that the phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky was on a secure line, or even if it was on a secure line, whether that would truly be secure under the circumstances. And so there were also allegations by the whistleblower and public reporting that Giuliani, for example, had gone to Spain and had had a trip planned to go and try to obtain some of this information that President Trump had asked President Zelensky for. And so there are real counterintelligent concerns in addition to these concerns about violating our federal election laws that, in my mind, made this an urgent
1: national security threat. Aside from the optics of ever asking another nation to get involved in our election, which is in and of itself, just forget the election laws decisions should be made within the United States and by the United States citizens and the people who vote in this country, not through some foreign engineered mechanism. You know, this looks fine. You're doing your job. You see this thing. It's it's high stakes. And you notify Congress as you must. Let's talk about the days and weeks that followed this sort of how did the next phase of this whole thing unfold? And to the extent you're comfortable talking about it, what was it like for you as well as these facts unfolded to be going through this as a person who was trying to do the right thing?
2: So by law, the urgent concern statute provided that the Director of National Intelligence shall transmit the Inspector General's determination to the Congressional Intelligence Committee's Within seven calendar days. So the DNI seventh calendar day fell on Monday, September 2nd, 2019. You know, we all know that the DNI did not submit the complaint to Congress on September 2nd, 2019. And I knew, you know, in real time that the DNI did not intend to forward that determination and the whistleblower's complaint to the intelligence committees on that appointed day of September 2nd, 2019 because I knew that the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel had got involved and had disagreed with the legal analysis done by me and, and the inspector general's office that this was a, an urgent concern. At the time, I clearly disagreed with OLC's conclusion. I was involved in conversations with the OLC before they you know, came out with their opinion. So I, I knew their legal thinking. I was given an opportunity to express my disagreement, but you know in the end, the uh, DOJ's Office of Legal Counsel determined that it was not, in fact, an urgent concern. And, and in fact, the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act didn't apply at all because the activity, according to the Office of Legal Counsel, didn't relate to an intelligence activity. That OLC opinion, because it determined that the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act didn't apply, had two really significant consequences. One was that the Director of National Intelligence was no longer required by statute. To forward the whistleblower's complaint and my determination that it was urgent and credible to the Congressional Intelligence Committees. So I knew that the DNI was no longer required to make the whistleblower's complaint known to the Intelligence Committees. And the other consequence, which was also immediately obvious to me, was if if that whistleblower complaint didn't fall within the jurisdiction of the Intelligence Being Whistleblower Protection Act, then my office had no jurisdiction to continue its investigation of the whistleblower's complaint. So based on the OLC opinion, the Office of the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community didn't do any further investigation because we've been told by the Department of Justice that we lacked any jurisdiction. And again, one of the primary goals that I had was to make sure that we operated within the rule of law. And if the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel tells you you don't have jurisdiction, well, as a member of the executive branch, I might disagree with it, but I've got to follow that direction. We did take steps to make sure that the Federal Bureau of Investigation was aware of what was going on so that they would have an opportunity to investigate the whistleblower's complaint. But our office's investigation was shut down. The other important part of the Office of Legal Counsel opinion was that it did not say that the DNI was prohibited from disclosing the whistleblower's complaint to the Congressional Intelligence Committees. They just said it wasn't required by the statute. And so that then put a lot of pressure on the acting DNI, Joe McGuire, to figure out whether he was going to, on his own, alert the intelligence committees to the whistleblower's complaint. In the end, he didn't. He made a decision not to, to disclose that complaint or my determination that was urgent and credible to the congressional intelligence committees. I was in contact with him through his general counsel's office, particularly Jason Kleitenik. I was trying to encourage them as strongly as I could. To let the intelligence communities know, you know, at least about the fact of a filing of a whistleblower's complaint. I mean, I understood that because of executive privilege, the acting DNI would be, you know, within his rights not to disclose necessarily the substance of the complaint uh, or any classified information in the whistleblower's complaint. But I was really insistent that the acting DNI and I really ought to let the intelligence committees know about the fact of a whistleblower complaint, in part because I just thought it was really impractical to think that this whistleblower's complaint was not going to be known to the intelligence committees, in part because the whistleblower has the right under the statute to notify the congressional intelligence committees about the fact of a filing. The whistleblower isn't allowed to disclose any of the substance of the of the complaint or any classified information, but they are allowed by the statute to let the congressional intelligence committees know about the fact of a filing. And by law, the inspector general has to let the whistleblower know within three calendar days of any action taken on the whistleblower complaint. So my office, by law, had let the whistleblower know that we had deemed it credible and urgent and then we also had to let the whistleblower know that it was not going to be forwarded to the Congressional Intelligence Committees. We couldn't tell the whistleblower why it wasn't being forwarded, but we did have to let the whistleblower know that, you know, and the whistleblower could count, right? Uh, he or she knew when the seven calendar days were up for the acting DNI to transmit it. and We had to let the whistleblower know that it in fact had not been transmitted, even though we couldn't tell them why.
1: But as it turns out, the whistleblower did exercise rights that they had. And it came to the fore, and it came to the attention of the public. Do you know how that unfolded?
2: Not until many, many months later did I learn that one of the whistleblower's lawyers was in contact with the congressional intelligence committees about the fact of a filing. Again, that was perfectly legal as far as I could tell, because the statute does allow the whistleblower to let the intelligence committees know about the fact of a filing. And so, what happened was, and I didn't learn about this until many, many months later. I waited a week for the acting DNI to do what I thought the law and, and, and past practice required him to do, which was to forward that whistleblower complaint and my determination to Congressional Intelligence Committee. So, after waiting a week and trying as hard as I could with the full support of my office to try to get the DNI to alert the committees to the fact of the filing. On Monday, September 9, 2019, I, myself, through a letter, alerted the congressional intelligence committees to the fact of an urgent concern filing. And what I didn't know, again, until many, many months later, I mean, I had been fired by the time I learned this information, was when the intelligence committee inspector general's office faxed that information to the intelligence committees on September 9, 2019, at the same time, the intelligence committees received my notice that there was a whistleblower complaint that had been made and that I had deemed to be urgent and credible, but that had not been transmitted to the Congressional Intelligence Committees as required by law. What I did not know was that the whistleblower lawyer was apparently meeting with staff members from at least one of the Congressional Intelligence Committees when my office's letter came over the wires.
1: Okay, so at some point, this gets taken up by a committee, and they begin to hold hearings. Sort of where were you, what were you thinking at the time, and uh, describe what was going on from your perspective.
2: There was a lot going on because after I sent that letter on September 9th, 2019, I, the letter didn't disclose you know, any of the substance of the whistleblower's complaint. So it didn't describe anything about the nature of the complaint and it didn't dis- disclose any classified information, but it, it alerted the intelligence communities to the, to the fact of a filing and, and that created a lot of activity. It also, you know, both behind the scenes and also public activity. I had to go down and testify to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the Hipsy, behind closed doors to tell them what little I could about the whistleblower complaint. And what I basically let the Hipsey know was that, you know, I felt that the whistleblower had pulled a fire alarm, if you will that had been provided to whistleblowers by Congress. And I also was able to tell them that I felt that the Department of Justice had taken that alarm, that fire alarm that had been made, uh, made available to whistleblowers and had disarmed it. Had disarmed the fire alarm without letting anybody know on the congressional intelligence committees or anywhere else that they had disarmed the fire alarm. And so the whistleblower wasn't allowed to, nobody could hear the alarm. They had disarmed that alarm without notifying Congress that they were doing so which prevented Congress from you know, learning about what you know, I had deemed was a credible and urgent national security threat. And that created a lot of activity and the, a lot of pressure on the, on the acting DNI to, to turn over the whistleblower complaint. And there started to be a, a public narrative that this didn't relate to an intelligence activity, you know, relying on the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel opinion. And the public narrative was starting to be shaped that this wasn't an intelligence activity because it didn't involve a member of the intelligence community. To some extent, that was true, because the president of the United States is not considered a member of the intelligence community. So it's true that the president's activity in making that phone call to his Ukrainian counterpart, you know, he wasn't a member of the intelligence community when he made that phone call, but I felt that it was, you know, somewhat misleading to omit from that public narrative, this was seeping out to the press that, hey, there's nothing to see here that doesn't involve any member of the intelligence community and it's not intelligence activity. And I thought that public narrative was really quite misleading because what wasn't being told was that it involved the President of the United States. And what also wasn't being told was what I thought was this really serious counterintelligence threat. And so I sent a second letter to the two congressional intelligence oversight committees about a week after I had sent my September 9th letter. I told the congressional intelligence committees that, you know, in my view, this activity was an urgent concern. It did fit within the statute because it related to one of the most important and significant of the DNI's responsibilities to the American people. And that was, you know, protecting our election security, which when you look at the ODNI's own public statements about its mission, you know, in the weeks leading up to the president's phone call, the ODNI had made public statements about how important election security was to the American people and how election security was one of the enduring missions of the intelligence community was to protect our election security. And so I just could not understand how the phone call soliciting foreign interference in our upcoming presidential election and all of these these activities taking place around the world to solicit this foreign assistance in our upcoming presidential election could not constitute an intelligence activity or a serious counterintelligence national security threat. And so that's why I sent that second letter to let them know my view that this was in fact a very serious national security threat because it related directly to what I thought was one of the most important and significant responsibilities the DNI has to the- Sure,
1: and it's an essential democratic institution, the security of the elections. And it's something that certainly we pride ourselves on as a nation. So without that, I'm not sure what we are. But once this narrative became public, the momentum increased. And coming as it did on the heels of Mueller's report- this did escalate to hearings, and ultimately, articles of impeachment were drawn up against President Trump. You know, when you were working in the fraud section, you know, when you were sworn in, when you went through the nomination process, which emphasized your independence, did you ever envision your sudden involvement in something of this scale? And something that was watched, I mean, I can attest, was well covered by Franz van Cat. BBC News, Al Jazeera, the eyes of the world were suddenly on this. Did you see yourself in the middle of this ever?
2: No, uh, absolutely not. When I was a federal prosecutor, I, you know, I handled prosecutions involving some well-known political figures. You know, I had some sense of what it was like to handle a high-profile matter, but they were nothing compared to the Ukraine whistleblower matter. I can totally relate to the reaction of the trainer of this year's Kentucky Derby winner, you know, who you might recall was an 80 to one long shot named Rich Strike. So there's, there was a longtime horse trainer who trained Rich Strike. And he tells this story of watching his horse enter the final turn of the Kentucky Derby and running, you know, neck and neck with some of the fastest horses in the world. And then he tells the story that he passes out and doesn't remember anything else that happened, including the end of the race. Now, I remember, you know, in the midst of the Ukraine whistleblower investigation, after I had forwarded those two letters to Congress in September 2019, you know, those two letters inform Congress of the whistleblower's complaint about President Trump, and they highlight, you know, the dispute that I have with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the Justice Department. And so the television stations started to show, I'm sitting in my office and I'm, I'm, I'm watching this sort of unfold on television, and I suddenly I look up and I see on the screen, that there's this screenshot with three of the most powerful people in the world on one side of the television screen. So you have the president, the Attorney General Barr, and the acting DNI were on one side of the screen. And on the other side of the screen was my goofy official photo. It's being publicly cast as me against the three of them. And I I could not believe what I had gotten myself into. And a part of me just wanted to pass out at that moment, you know, sort of like the, the horse trainer. For those days in September of 2019, I just kept playing in my own head, Green Day's song, Wake Me Up When September Ends.
1: Well, September didn't. You got fired. Um, I, I think it might be fair to say for exercising your independence. Apparently, all those questions about independence, I guess maybe you gave the wrong answer. I don't know. And did Rand Paul circle back in your life as this thing unfolded? He, not
2: directly, indirectly, as many of your listeners will recall, that despite his concerns about whistleblowers and protecting them from retaliation, when he put a hold on my nomination in April of 2018... By the winter of 2019, during the course of the Senate impeachment hearings, it was Senator Rand Paul who was, you know, went on to the Senate floor during the, the Senate impeachment trial and tried to cause Chief Justice Roberts to identify the Ukraine whistleblower by name. For, Senator Paul wanted to ask a question that would identify the Ukraine whistleblower's identity, uh, or who he thought was the Ukraine whistleblower, anyways. And to the Chief Justice's credit, declined to ask that question.
1: Well, um, there have been some decisions about what was done here, and they've been fairly recent. In 2022, there have been some more public statements made about personnel findings, I guess, regarding the whistleblower that would appear to have fully vindicated what the whistleblower did in this case. And I imagine that you're aware of those, which I would say reinforces the correctness of what you did. And that's, I think, important. So I I would ask you, though, let's talk about the big takeaways here, because people who are listening to this might be young lawyers, and they're excited about careers. There had to be massive lessons that you've learned from this.
2: Yes, there are many lessons to be learned from this. I'll give you three. You know, first, for any public servant, integrity is essential. Integrity means more than being honest. It means being consistent in word and deed. We have to do what we said we're going to do, and we have to hold others accountable for what they said they would do. Each individual like me who's taken an oath of office, and you've taken the same one, swears to do what the American people entrusted them to do, which is speak the truth and put loyalty to the public interest above loyalty to any person, party, or individual organization. With that constitutional oath comes an ethical obligation to speak up when public servants see wrongdoing and to speak up within the rule of law, particularly those in the intelligence community. Because as we discussed, there are very few who have the privilege to have access to these really powerful and important intelligence powers. That means that every individual who has the honor privilege of working on behalf of the American people must be able and willing to themselves be a whistleblower. That leads me to the second lesson, whistleblowers matter. You know, Unfortunately, whistleblowing can be a double-sided hammer. If you think about it, there are so few activities in which a public servant can act with personal integrity and leave behind profound public good with so little personal advantage as whistleblowing. Mm-hmm. Whistleblowers face numerous risks, real or perceived, including being ostracized, losing their job, losing friends, hurting their professional reputations, and even suffering physical harm. In facing up to these risks, lawful whistleblowers operationalize personal integrity, and they operationalize organizational integrity. You know, it's why those who uphold their oaths of office by lawfully disclosing that others may have broken theirs should never, ever be retaliated against. It's also why lawful whistleblowers are so important to good and honest government, especially in the intelligence community. Given the need for secrecy, whistleblowers are, you know, what I would consider to be a necessary light in the darkness and an irreplaceable voice out of what can be silence. Sometimes, though, it takes a backup source to help whistleblowers and to allow them to be seen or heard, especially in the intelligence community. And that's the third lesson. Independent inspectors general matter as well. Inspectors general, too, must have personal integrity. But by law and character, they need another attribute as well, independence, The American people, or at least many of them do, rightly expect IGs and those who work in IG offices to be independent, because first of all, that's what the law requires. And that's why IGs and those who work in IG offices must be persons of personal integrity and, at least as importantly, be willing and able to act independently of the agency they oversee and of Congress. Anyone who works in an IG office must be prepared to match a whistleblower's physical manifestation of integrity with you know, their own physical manifestation of independence. In doing so, those who work in IG offices also have to be prepared to face the same types of retaliation, the same types of unfortunate retaliation that whistleblowers face. There are also important lessons about organizational integrity. Maybe you'll have me back on a, another podcast and we can, we can talk about those lessons as well.
1: I think those are great lessons. And I'm really happy to say that after going through this, which had to have been incredibly stressful and just massive in your life. And frankly, for a lot of us, you've moved on. You've done well. And I think you've taken those traits with you. I think people would say, arguably, you've done quite brilliantly. And uh, you now have a private national security practice.
2: I do. I'm very fortunate. I joined law firm of Kroll and Mooring in February of 2021. I'm a partner in Kroll and Mooring's White and Regulatory Enforcement Group in Washington, D.C., I co-lead Kroll's National Security Practice Group, and I've been really fortunate. Kroll's been a a great place to work. They've let me and encouraged me to develop different work streams from all of my prior government experience. So I've got a financial fraud practice that involves procurement fraud and the Foreign Crop Practices Act practice. I've got a nice national security practice, as you said, that gets involved in really interesting issues related to economic espionage and cybersecurity and other national security related investigations. I get involved with whistleblower investigations and helping you know, companies improve their whistleblowing programs and make sure that they're you know, treating their whistleblower complaints as, as seriously and as urgently as, as they should. And I have a, an, another practice, another work stream that came out of my work in the intelligence community that were, that relates to artificial intelligence. I'm, I'm really excited about that artificial intelligence practice. I found when I was in the intelligence community that the intelligence community was spending you know, billions and billions of dollars on AI programs and activities, but not nearly as much, and, and really a very, very small amount of money, relatively, on oversight of artificial intelligence operations and activities. I think AI has you know, profound benefits for our society, but I also think it has you know, some serious risks. And so I'm really happy to be able to work on AI programs, risk management, governance, and compliance uh, activities related to AI in the private sector. I'm also really excited about teaching, being an adjunct professor at George Washington Law School in the fall, a teaching a course, co-teaching a course on artificial intelligence law and policy.
1: It sounds great. So um, what would you say to young lawyers who are interested right now in going into national security law? You must have a couple of nuggets that you'd be willing to offer.
2: My The one nugget I have is uh, go for it. You'll It's really hard to find, you know, a better mission than protecting national security. I think the only way you can really find a better mission in protecting national security is perhaps to, to team it up with working at the Justice Department at the same time and trying to do what's right in terms of the criminal justice system at the same time that you can, you're able to you know, do important work to protect the American people. I do think that for folks out there that are thinking about going into the national security area, particularly lawyers, is to, you know, be mindful that you can't ever really predict when or in what ways you know large or small that you know your moral courage might be tested and uh, all I can say is that almost almost certainly it will happen in those moments when your moral courage is tested uh, what I would just say is don't ever let anyone you know take your integrity from you
1: I think that's an amazing message and I've really enjoyed talking to you tonight I regret that you had this experience on some level, but I think because of what happened, that it was in your stewardship also is a very good thing uh, for the American public. So I wish you well. And I hope that you'll come back and talk to us again in the future, because I know there are many more topics that I would enjoy discussing with you on a podcast sometime in 2023. Well,
2: thank you again, Elisa, for having me on the podcast. And I, I also really enjoyed our conversation.
1: All right. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to NSLT why don't you share this episode with a friend, maybe discuss it over coffee or a drink and subscribe to NSLT. And you can send us comments and feedback through Twitter at aba_natsec, or you can send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. And just remember the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do its best to keep you informed on fast-moving developments that will bring national security law into action. And don't forget the lawyers hosting this podcast today, meaning me, I'm here in my individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, and we'll see you next time.
0: The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.